We will be in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11 this morning, as we begin studying the crucifixion account, starting with the arrest of Jesus, his trials, and then eventually to be put on the cross, leading up to the resurrection. As you can imagine, all four Gospels talk about this event. It is the most significant event in the life of Jesus. It is the purpose for which he came to go to the cross on our behalf, to die in our place. By the time John writes his Gospel, at least two of the other Gospels, if not all three, are are well-traveled, well-read. He would have been very familiar with, as I said, at least two, if not all three of them. And some people make a big deal of the differences between John's gospel and other gospels. I think in many ways it's the differences that help us to understand what John is doing and what it is that we should be paying attention to. It's not that he contradicts them, but it's as he writes his gospel, I I, I can see him as the apostle saying that there's something that needs to be emphasized that hasn't been emphasized before. There's something that I remember my Savior doing and I want to make sure people don't miss it. So he doesn't contradict the other gospel writers, but he does emphasize different things. And so I want us to look at what it is in this passage that he emphasizes. And so today we're going to be talking about control. Don't raise your hand, but think for a moment. Do you like to be in control? Does the person next to you, like? don't raise your hand, does the person next to you like to be in control? I, I think in general, we like to be in control. We like to feel like we're in control. We don't like the feeling of being out of control. Some people, if, if they're starting to feel out of control, they try harder. They put more effort into their situation, doing what they can do. And you're going to see in the passage today, somebody does that. He's going to do what he can do to gain control. Some other people, when they realize that they are out of control, they fall into despair. They they give up. They see it as hopeless. Why bother? And next week, we're going to see someone take that approach. Just give up. Just give in. Ironically, it's the exact same person, Peter. As he responds in these two extremes, I've got this. No, I don't got this. That's Peter for you. The important thing is not to know that we are in control, but to trust the one who truly is in control. You see, our control is always minuscule compared to the control of the Son of God. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Let's look at John chapter 18. We're just looking at verses 1 through 11. As Jesus goes to the garden... As other gospel writers talk about to pray, but John's going to emphasize something a little different. So let's pick it up in John chapter 18. Let me read just verses 1 through 3 as we look at this moment when all seems lost for Jesus and his disciples. John chapter 18 verses 1 through 3. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. 
Now, other Gospels identify this as the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a garden that Jesus liked to go to. He went often there. It would have been a garden mainly made up of olive trees. It was a pleasant place to sit, to pray, to hang out with his disciples. He would often go there in the evenings when he was in the area of Jerusalem and he would sit with them and talk with them. It was, given its location, probably a a private garden owned by someone that was rather wealthy. These gardens would have been walled in. So it was a safe place to go and to get away from the people. It was a quiet place where Jesus would meet with his disciples. It was a special place for them to spend time together as a rabbi and students and as friends. It was also safe because it was surrounded by a wall. Verse 2 says that Judas knows this place. I want you to think about this. This place that was special to Jesus and his followers becomes twisted and used by this betrayer, Judas. Knowing that it was special, knowing that this is where Jesus would go, he uses this to, on the surface it seems, trap Jesus and to betray him. It's because Jesus shared this special place with Judas that Judas is able to use it in this way. But Judas is not alone. Verse 3 says he is guiding a detachment of soldiers. That word detachment is a technical term. It most often referred to what was known as a Roman cohort, which was about 600 Roman soldiers. Now, it's hard to say here, but, but it can also be used for a subset within that group of about 200 soldiers. Maybe it's even a subset within that. But the point is very clear. This is a rather sizable group of soldiers that have come with Judas to arrest one guy who might be with 11 other guys. None of whom are soldiers. This is an overwhelming force. The Romans feared an uprising. The government understood, uh, the Roman Empire understood that the area of Jerusalem in particular and and broader around the the nation of Israel, that, that there was unrest, there was always tension, and they were always quick and ready to squash any uprisings that might start. It's also the time of the Passover. So there are a lot of the Jewish people that have come into the capital there and they are there to worship their God, but yet they are constantly being overseen by these Roman soldiers and the Roman Empire and it was always just ready for a spark to take hold and a rebellion to take off. And so the Romans kept a very close watch on this. They knew that Jesus had stirred up crowds, or at least that crowds had chosen to be stirred up in the past. They were always well aware of this, and so they were ready to squash anything that might start before it could get out of control. Because they, the Romans, are very much in control. We also see officials from chief priests and the Pharisees. These are Jewish religious, Jewish, Jewish religious leaders who have been plotting against Jesus for some time now. They too are in control. They have control over this religion. They have control over the Jewish people. They have control over their interpretation of God's word. And Jesus is a threat to them. And they don't want this to get out of control. They want to make sure that they they maintain their control over these things. And all they have to do is get rid of this man, 
Jesus. It also says that they're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Now, weapons, I think, are pretty obvious. There's soldiers there. I would expect weapons. But again, it, it seems like overkill. It's one guy with 11 followers. Doesn't seem like it'd be that hard for a group of Roman soldiers to take them down and arrest them. What's less obvious, even, is the need for lanterns and torches. You might be thinking, well, duh, it's at night. But here's the thing. The Passover always, always, always occurred on a full moon. I worked at a camp four summers. And one of the most annoying things is that when you'd be out on a night hike and the campers would turn on their flashlights and you have a full moon. And the irony is that when you turn on a flashlight, when there's a full moon, you see less. Because the flashlight illuminates what's right in front of you, but the moon is doing a great job illuminating everything. And we would always tell the campers, turn off your flashlights. You'll see better. The light of the moon is enough. So why, if they're coming out on a full moon to arrest Jesus, do they need torches and lanterns? Maybe it's cloudy, but you know what I think it is? Where is he? He's in a garden, an olive grove. Olives grow on trees. It's a whole bunch of trees. What happens if he runs? What happens if he hides? What happens if they have to go in and get him? Well, suddenly the moon's not so helpful under a bunch of trees. They were prepared for a fight and a chase. They were ready to get this guy no matter what. All seems lost. There's a large group of armed and powerful people that have come to take Jesus. These leaders, these soldiers, in their own minds, and probably in the minds of the disciples, are very much in control. And it appears Jesus, and therefore his followers, are completely out of control. Jesus as a part of this, everything being lost is being betrayed by someone who is very close to him. He's using this special place where Jesus is to be the, the place, the stage, if you will, to betray his rabbi. Judas is twisting his relationship with Jesus to take and exercise control over Jesus. Now maybe Jesus should hide. Could have stayed in the garden. He could have run. Maybe there was some back way out. I don't know. He was in a fairly protected environment. He could have found some way to disappear. Other times in the Gospels, he had slipped away because he is the all-powerful Son of God. Maybe he could have done that here. Actually, he definitely could have done that here. But that's not what he does. Because when all seems lost... As we see in this passage and so many other passages throughout Scripture, and we need to remember in our own lives, when all seems lost, Jesus is in control. Absolutely and perfectly. Look at verses 4 through 7. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, and get this little phrase, went out. Jesus, knowing all things that were going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. 
When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. And let's stop there. Jesus knows what's going on. See, part of being out of control is is the fear of not knowing what's happening, not knowing how it's going to turn out. That is not true for Jesus. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So he's not out of control in knowledge in any way. He knows what's going to happen. In fact, he's been planning for this moment. In John chapter 2, verse 4, he tells his mother, My hour has not yet come. He knew at the very beginning of his public ministry, there was a time when I will be arrested, but it's not now. John chapter 7, verse 30, the leaders try to arrest Jesus, but he miraculously escapes. And John helpfully tells us his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, verse 20, he's teaching openly in the temple and the leaders try to arrest him. Yet Jesus tells us they didn't, they couldn't. His hour had not yet come. Yet in John chapter 12, John chapter 13, and again in 17, as Jesus enters the final week of his ministry leading up to his arrest, he says on several occasions, as John chapter 13 verse 1 says, Jesus knew the hour had come. He knew. He always knew. None of this was out of his control. None of it was beyond his knowledge. All of it was exactly according to his eternal plan. He arranged it. He planned it. He caused it to happen. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is not a victim. He's not a victim in the other Gospels either. But I think John is trying to really point out, don't miss this. This didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus caused it to happen. In fact, John leaves out the whole idea of of Judas going up and betraying Jesus with a kiss. Not that it didn't happen. He just doesn't see the need to mention it. For John, he wants us to see Jesus was in control of everything that happened. Don't miss it. And then verse 4, as I said earlier, Jesus went out. Here he is in this walled garden. He could have run. He could have hide. He knows they are there. He decides to go out. They don't come in and get him at all. Because he is in control. At the end of verse 4, I love this. He's still in control. It's like, hey guys, why are you here? Who is it you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now this was a common way of referring to someone. You state their name and where they're from. They didn't really have last names back then. So you were son of or daughter of someone or from your hometown. That was a way to refer to you versus someone else. Jesus was actually a pretty common name. So this was Jesus of Nazareth. But it was also, we know you. You're that guy named Jesus. We know the town you come from. That little backwater town of of Nazareth. We know you. We're, We're just here for this man, this nobody named Jesus. Nazareth. We know who he is and what he's capable of. We have him all figured out. They might have thought he was a a criminal, a charlatan, a leader of a rebellion. It doesn't really matter. They've got control over him. They're there to get him. And Jesus identifies himself by saying, I 
am he. It's easy to miss in the English translation. But in Greek, it's two words. Ego and me. And it simply means, I am. It would have been the way the Greek translation of the Old Testament translated the very name of God, Yahweh. I am. Ego and me. I am he. Now understand what this means. In the Old Testament, when God identifies himself as I am, he is saying, I am, and I don't depend on anything. I don't depend on a hometown. I don't depend on a parent. I don't depend on something that I've done. I simply am. Before God did anything in creation, He was. There's nothing you can say, well, I am the God who did this. Because even before He did this, He still is, I am. He is the self-existent one who depends on nothing else. And so here, Jesus says, who is it you're looking for? Ah, just this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. I am. Now, some people say, well, that's overstating the fact. Jesus really wasn't claiming the divine word of God here. It's really not that big a deal. Soldiers were pretty good at their job. And and if you want to know the intention of the speaker, sometimes you look at the reaction of the people. Okay? And people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. And one time he claims to be God, and the Jewish people pick up stones to throw throw at him and kill him. Guess what? They understood Jesus was claiming to be God. How do the Roman soldiers here react? These men that are trained in battle fall backwards. Now some say, well, they were bowing down to worship him because they realized he was claiming to be God. No, that's silly. They weren't bowing in worship, well, at least not intentionally. Not of their own free will they weren't bowing in worship. They fell. Some say... They want to interpret this and take out all the miracles. Well, they're, they're just so impressed by his boldness that they're, they're second-guessing things and just stepping back. There's a couple hundred soldiers there and one guy with like 11 fishermen and ragtag people that don't really know how to fight. I don't think they're shrinking back in fear. This is a demonstration of the power and control of Jesus over this moment. He wants the people that have come to arrest him and his disciples and every single one of us throughout the course of history that will read about this to make no mistake, he is God and he is in control. Not the soldiers, not the religious leaders, not Judas. He is more powerful than this crowd with their weapons and torches. He is more powerful than Judas with his insidious betrayal. He doesn't need numbers or weapons or devious plans. He is God. Now look at verse 7. Again he asks them, Who is it you want? I just imagine, I wonder if their tone of voice changes at this point. It's kind of hard to read into it, but I I almost wonder if they're still on the ground, like they've fallen back. He's like, now just tell me again, who are you here for? And I imagine the first time they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And this time they're like, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Now look at the difference in verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This reminds me of an Old Testament account of a guy named Elijah. And everything's falling apart in his life, and he thinks that God has abandoned him and abandoned his people. 
God leads him to this mountaintop. In fact, turn, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 19. It's a famous story that if you grew up going to church, you've probably heard this in Sunday school, or maybe you've heard about it as an adult. But I think it's very easy to miss what's going on here. In 1 Kings chapter 19, let me just start uh, in verse 9. It says, There he went into a cave and spent the nights, talking about Elijah. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He, Elijah, replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your people, your prophets, to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. He says, Elijah, I'm going to show you my power. I want you to understand, you, you see... These foreign armies, you, you see these unrighteous leaders. He's like, but there's something you don't see. I want you to understand my power. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. And he's going, Elijah, look at this. Look at what I can do. I control the wind. I can shatter the rocks. I can break the mountain. I can do that. But then it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Twice he's asked a question. And he gets this profound display of power. But then he gets this small whisper. And it's in the whisper that God is talking to him. And it's always impressed me in that story, in that account of Elijah, that God is impressing upon Elijah. Elijah, sometimes I blow the wind and break the rocks. Sometimes I shake the earth. But sometimes I work in quieter ways. It's just as much me. It's still my power. And that's how I'm working here. You see, in the garden, Jesus knocked them down with the power of who he was, his name as the eternal Son of God. He can do that. But in many ways, he's saying, that's not what I'm doing here. In his darkest hour, he shows that he is in complete control. He has walked purposefully to this moment with a word he could change the circumstances, but he is choosing not to. He's demonstrated his power. And now after demonstrating his power, he's going to make a request. And it's interesting to see as he exercises his control that yes, on the one hand he's going to the cross, but on the other hand he's also protecting his own. Look at verses 8 through 11. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happens so that the words... He had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup or shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. We'll stop there. Let these men go. Jesus has just made it abundantly clear he's in control. 
These soldiers, these religious leaders, this betrayer, they have no power over him. He is in complete control. And if he says, let these guys go, guess what's going to happen to the guys? They will be let go. Because he's in control. The soldiers, in many ways, are powerless to stop it. Verse 9 fulfills something he had said back in John chapter 6. Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Here in the garden we get a glimpse the sovereign power of Jesus Christ to protect those saved by him. As he chooses to go willingly to his own death, he does so to protect those that trust in him. And then we see Peter in verse 10 try to take things into his own hands. See, if this was a movie, I I imagine this kind of as an action movie, there comes that point in, in a certain scene where it's like the, the heroes have kind of laid down their weapons, but they give that glance at each other. They give, they give each other that look that, that they each know means, I know it looks like surrendering, but we're just kidding. I got the guy on the left, you got the guy on the right, and they kind of wink and nod, and boom, the fight breaks out, right? And I think that's what Peter thinks is happening. Peter's like, I got this, Jesus. I got it. Really, Peter? Jesus just said a word, two words. And they all fell down. Peter draws out his sword. Now, why was Peter carrying around a sword? Maybe he always carried around a sword. I don't know. The guy's a former fisherman. Really didn't need a sword. There's a lot of tension in the the narrative up to this point. So Peter probably figured out something bad was going to happen. Maybe at some point he started carrying a sword. Oh, Peter. Takes out his sword. Now, I imagine in a situation like this. Again, maybe I'm reading too much into it. It doesn't look like he's trying to warn them, right? I think he's trying to take the guy out. Maybe chop off his head or pierce his heart. I don't know what he's trying to do here. Brave, brave Peter cuts his ear off. Way to go, Peter. He's a fisherman. He's not a sword master. He's he's not a soldier. He's a fisherman. Give him a fishing rod. He probably would have won this fight. But they didn't use fishing rods. It was a net. He just takes off the guy's ear. The irony that here following this profound display of the power of the Son of God, Jesus tries to take this control into his own hands. It's like he wanted to help Jesus. And if I could just, as as a little side application, so often as people read the Word of God, it's like, God's done so much, we're going to help him do the rest. No! God doesn't need our help. He's never needed our help. It's not like if we don't do our part, God's plan is going to fall apart. That's not the way God's kingdom works. God chooses to work through us for our good and His glory. But God has got this. He's always had it. Jesus is in complete control. And don't worry, Luke tells us Jesus heals the guy's ear. He's fine. Look at verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Again, here he is in complete control. Stop it, Peter. This is not the way. And then he emphasizes, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's reminding them, guys, it's all led to this. I have chosen this. I am going with these men. I am making sure that you are safe. I've got this. Jesus is in control. 
Yes, these soldiers will arrest him. Yes, they will put him on trial, a mockery of a trial. Yes, he will die on a cross. But he is in control of it every step of the way, which is proven when he raises from the dead that Easter morning. Jesus is in control. Our feeble efforts to grab hold of control in our own lives are just as bad as Peter trying to chop off that guy's ear. We don't know what we're doing. Stop yourself. Let these words ring in your head. Jesus has got this. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. Jesus is not a victim here during the arrest. He's not a victim during the trials. He's not a victim in the crucifixion. He is the causer of it all. And he did it for us. So that he can say, you're mine. And I'm protecting you. And I hold on to those that are mine. If Jesus can do this in the garden, at his darkest hour, he can take control and show his control and guide you during your darkest times as well. He is in control. But the flip side of that, just like Peter needed to be reminded and I need to be reminded and we all need to be reminded, we are not in control. We don't like that part, but there's no accepting that Jesus is in control unless we can admit and accept we are not. Jesus is in control. And so I want you to think, your day-to-day life, are you taking out your sword and saying, I got this? Or are you trusting in Jesus, the great I am? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know the darkness of the situations that people might be going through in their own lives. I don't know the scrambling that they might be making right now to gain control in their own lives. But I would guess, as is always true, there are those who are weary right now from seeking control. There may be those, as we'll see with Peter in a moment next week, as as he despairs. There may be those at that point just wanting to give up. God, may we look to Jesus. May we see the power of your Son on display, even here in what looks like such a dark moment. When there are so many powerful things that have joined forces against Him, and yet He is still more powerful than all of it. And that was true then, and it is true now. May we have the faith to say, I am not in control. And that's okay. Because I believe in Jesus. And he is in control. In the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.